Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to the Anthro Alert Podcast, where we take our live show from Minnesota Radio and publish it for you as a podcast for you to listen to at your convenience, whether you're sitting at home, driving in a car, or you somehow stumbled upon this and you don't know where you're at, you're going to listen to Anthro Alert, and it's about anthropology, and it's super cool, so I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Bulls. How's it going? It's Friday afternoon. It's a little overcast today, but I hope you're having a good Friday, getting getting ready for homecoming, I think the games this weekend, or just a relaxing weekend. So it is 3.01, that means you're listening to Anthro Alert, and if you've never listened to Anthro, Anthro Alert before, if you're just tuning in for the first time, let me tell you a little bit about what we are about. So Anthro Alert is a show about anthropology and simply why it matters. Each week we'll discuss how anthropology is relevant, and over time we'll feature various guests from the Department of Anthropology right here from right here at USF to discuss their research and weigh in on everyday topics or current events. We believe that this is a good opportunity for us as anthropologists and anthropology students to connect with the USF community, to raise awareness and of, of the value of an anthropological perspective. Uh, just like every week, we like to preface our show with the disclaimer that the statements we make and the opinions that we express on AnthroAlert are our opinions and are not necessarily representative of anthropology as a discipline, of USF, anthropology department, of USF as an institution, student government, or Bulls Radio. So today we have a very, uh, we have a good show for you planned. We have Dr. Jonathan Bethard with us. Uh, he is an expert in bioarchaeology and forensic anthropology. Dr. Bethard, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a fun, fun way to spend the afternoon. Yeah. We enjoy it, and I'm glad that you do, too. So this is your first time on the radio, correct? I am a newbie. Are you you're excited? I'm, I'm excited. I'm nervous, but I'm excited a little nervous. To, to chat. Oh, well. don't, don't be nervous. We like to keep it relaxed here on Anthro Alert. Cool. But I think we should just, uh, let's just hop into, hop into a conversation. So, like I said, uh, you work in bioarchaeology, which is sort of crossing biological anthropology with archaeology, and you work in forensics. So first, let's take bioarchaeology. Can you tell us a little bit about this specific subfield of anthropology? Yeah, so bioarchaeology is a, a hybrid that really combines aspects of biological anthropology, of archaeology, and cultural anthropology to get at questions about the past. Um, by looking at the human component of the archaeological record. And when I say the human component, I mean the human skeletal component of uh, the archaeological record. So bioarchaeologists like me use what we know about the human skeleton in numerous kinds of mortuary contexts to make interpretations and, and to understand uh, the world at the time from whatever place um, that uh, a particular archaeological site might be that might have that kind of information in the form of, of human skeletal remains. And so what's cool about bioarchaeology is that there are bioarchaeologists literally working all around the world. Uh, there are bioarchaeologists who work on questions of, say, the historic past, but also the prehistoric past, going back as far as really, um, you know, we have datable occupations for um, for 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 us as as modern humans, so it's a pretty broad 
field in terms of its geography and in terms of its temporal focus. Are there bioarchaeologists that, you know, do more people choose to concentrate on the historic past, prehistoric past, or is there like a most popular, I guess, time period to use these types of techniques? You know what? I think it just depends. Um, it depends in some ways where a person is working and where a person was trained and, mm. and, 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 and in the context, of course, human skeletal remains are an interesting kind of data set and human skeletal remains mean different things to different folks, mm -hmm. right? So there, there may be, I, I don't know if I say that there's a trend um, for one area or another. Um, it might be more dependent on the region where a person is working. So, um, so for example, where my work and my project is right now in Europe, we're looking at much more recent contexts, say 300, 400, 500 years ago, as opposed to colleagues that are, you know, say studying um, things that are thousands of years old at whatever part or place in the world where they might work. Mm -hmm. So how do you how do you think like combining you know bioarchaeology or biological anthropology with archaeology? How do these subfields complement each other? You know, why do people choose to you know kind of pull methods from both of these? Well, I think when it comes to a bioarchaeological approach, which in essence is an anthropological approach, you're sort of taking from all of the toolkits that anthropologists have. And so biological mm -hmm. anthropologists, of course, are interested in the biology of, of people uh, and people in the past, you know, as far back as their evidence for, you know, humans and our ancestors. So we, we know a lot from biological anthropology about skeletal anatomy and things that anatomy can help us know about demography of populations uh, and things that you can tease out from skeletons even on a on a microscopic level mm -hmm. or on a chemical level but really when that's combined with archaeological information that's really when we start to see some interesting sorts of interpretations become possible when you're you're drawing from perspectives in biological anthropology you're drawing from perspectives in archaeology and you're drawing from perspectives in cultural anthropology to get at sort of the cultural context from however long ago that you're looking so it really mm -hmm. is this sort of what i think is a, a field that that pulls from so many different kinds of anthropological scholarship mm. so so how are you using these particular um uh, perspectives, I guess. You know, it sounds like bioarchaeology is kind of a jack of all trades. In in essence, uh, you're you know you said you're pulling from many different subfields. How are you using this perspective to uh, get at some of the questions that you're looking at in your research? So right now, um, I'm part of an ongoing project that I've been collaborating with for about five years, and we've been working in the medieval uh, time period in the modern day country of Romania, and. We've been looking at archaeological contexts that um, have yielded a large number of human skeletons from different um, archaeological contexts around medieval churches. And one of those that I've been thinking a lot about for about the last five years has specifically involved uh, a, a place where my colleague uncovered from inside of a church that had flooded the remains of around 70 individuals, a high number of those individuals were children. And upon sort of a closer look at the, the, the skeletons of these children, we were able to see some things about their age and that a lot of them were 
like newborn babies. Uh, and they were newborn babies whose skeletons also sort of had some interesting kinds of pathological changes. And so when we start to think about, well, what do skeletons of newborn babies with skeletal pathologies mean? Then that starts to make us ask questions about the women that were giving birth to these children. And so we were thinking about sort of the, the, the process of pregnancy and, and m motherhood, but also sort of the intentionality that people were creating mortuary deposits by burying their children in fairly consecrated places. So it sort of snowballs into many different kinds of anthropological questions that, that we're using bioarchaeology, or that we're using biological anthropology, that we're using, that we're using archaeology to get at. And it, even, you know, interdisciplinary kinds of questions as well. So we're, we're, I'm drawing on what historians are saying. I'm drawing on what some demographers are saying about some of these particular regions. So it's a, it's really this rich field that gets at sort of questions that lots of different kinds of scholars are interested in that uses this really invaluable resource to, to answer or to try to answer some of those questions. How long have you been working at that site in um, Romania? I've been working in this region of Romania um, since 2013. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. So I'm working in a part of Romania that wasn't always Romania. It was, um, I'm working in Transylvania, uh, which is a really a region inside of the Carpathian Basin that f until the end of World War I was part of the Kingdom of Hungary. And as a result, of course, in the Kingdom of Hungary, there were Hungarian communities. So we're working in a community of folks who are still um, Hungarian by their language and their customs and their culture, but are in Romania. So mm -hmm. it's an interesting sort of sort of look at a particular community that has lived in a particular region for about a thousand years and who whose living folks today are very interested in what their ancestors were doing f during the the late Middle Ages and the early modern period four or five six hundred years ago. So it's it's interesting in the sense that there's a lot of continuity where where in a lot of places in the world the the folks that live somewhere um, today are not the people that were living there 500 years ago and this particular region is I think really rich in that regard so that um, my collaborators who are archaeologists and historians um, are really interested because they are part of the community mm -hmm. that they are studying and and that's that's um, been really a cool thing to, to be part of as we've really thought about this this sort of continuity of this particular group in this region of of Romania um, in Eastern Europe for for you know they, they've been there a thousand years so that's that's been an interesting thing to think about and study have you seen any um, engagement I guess in the community of like you know outside of the scholars that you're working a with lot. Yeah. yeah there's a lot in terms of um, whether my colleague who is this a local archaeologist of the museum in this uh, community whether folks come to um, the the actual sites where excavations are happening, mm -hmm. whether they come to the laboratory, whether they come to some public engagement kinds of events at the museum, uh, whether we've had journalists visit our a project, and you know whether there's a story in the paper. There seems to be a lot of interest, just sort of all related to this long-term group of um, it's a group of Hungarian folks who are called the CK. Mm -hmm. um, the most famous C.K. that you've maybe heard of is the comedian Louis C.K., 
whose mm-hmm. la- who spells his name CK, which is the you know new, new the 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 lettered spelling of the word CK. So these CK folks um, are are this community of Hungarians, and they are the ones who are still there, really interested in in better understanding their history over this fairly long period of time. So can um, have you guys? Uh, do you have any uh, um, findings? yet um, on this research you've been doing as far as like what kind of pathologies you've been yeah. finding in the babies and we know. we think that we've seen um, some sorts of suggestions that there were vitamin deficiencies in the community based okay. on where we see some of the lesions on uh, the skeletons which bioarchaeologists are, are really good at understanding how various kinds of disease process will affect bones in particular ways and so we think and we're sort of moving in the direction of thinking about um, the outbreaks of maybe vitamin C, vitamin D deficiencies. But mm-hmm. then we ask the question, well, what really how does how did medieval women sort of go through this? Because if their newborn infants had it, then they likely had it as well. Mm-hmm. And, and those are some unanswered questions. We found a little bit about um, in the historical archive about dietary practices of pregnant women specifically. Um, so, so we've got some of that, those kinds of questions. We've also got some clues in the fact that the loss of an infant was a very profound thing for mm-hmm. women in these communities with some correspondences that have been discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we've been thinking about sort of how we can get at some of the human emotion of grief mm-hmm. by thinking about this uh, as well. Uh, which is an interesting conversation because yeah. I think in parts of Europe, scholars have said, well, mortality was such a thing that, you know, people were so used to it, they didn't really care. And th- I I have tended to disagree with that perspective, even right. though there have been some fairly famous historians who have sort of articulated that idea. Mm-hmm. So, so we've basically all, I think we've tried to, at least my work has tried to sort of pull in some real humanistic approaches to understanding the past in this part of Romania as well by getting at aspects of maternal health and human emotion and and things that might you, you might not think about when it comes to bioarchaeology or archaeological questions in general, but I think hmm. that we've got this interesting place to be able to to at least think about and have some data to support the interpretations that we're making. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you're pulling in some of these humanistic factors that may not be necessarily utilized as much in the field um, of of bioarchaeology. Those are really interesting perspectives to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a good good point to stop and and take a short music break, and then we're going to come back with Dr. Bethard and uh, talk some more about bioarchaeology, but also forensic anthropology. So stay tuned. Hey, Bulls, how's it going? You're listening to Bulls Radio, WSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and the TuneIn app. You can learn more about those at BullsRadio.org. And just like every Friday afternoon, you are listening to Anthro Alert. We've been talking to Dr. Jonathan Bethard about his work in bioarchaeology uh, in Romania, working in specifically in Transylvania. And um, so we're going to move on a little bit, talking about bones in the historic past to bones a little bit more recently, uh, talking about forensic anthropology. So, Dr. Bethard, can you just give us a, just a brief sort of introduction of what forensic anthropology is? Yeah, sure. So forensic anthropology is this other application of biological anthropology that 
takes the human skeleton and puts the human skeleton in a contemporary context. Uh, a word that gets thrown around a lot is the word medical legal, or it just means forensic. So forensic mm. anthropologists are people that get asked by um, coroners, medical examiners, uh, police, or other sorts of legal, authority, legal authorities to look at unidentified human skeletal remains that, if we're taking an example in Florida, that maybe could wash up on a Gulf beach or be found um, in a wooded area or something like that. And, and usually it means that the human remains are beyond a state of recogni recognition. So for some reason, um, enough time has gone by and they're just skeletal. So the forensic anthropologist is gonna provide information to whoever's asking, like the coroner, the medical examiner, wherever, about the person's sex, how old they were, uh, are there things on the skeleton that might indicate how they died that indicate if something was perhaps accidental or if something was unsolved like a homicide so it just kind of depends and so we we take what we know about uh the skeleton from biological anthropology and then apply it to these sort of real world contexts and what's interesting about forensic anthropology is that it's quite diverse in terms of mm -hmm. how it happens in the united states so um, some states have one for the entire state. Some large cities like New York have uh, their own team of forensic experts. Florida um, uses faculty members who are professors at universities. It just depends. But mm. the commonality is that the forensic anthropologist has been trained in biological anthropology, has a fairly expert knowledge of the human skeleton, and can take that mm -hmm. um, and, and apply it to whatever the circumstance could be. So your research or your focus... Specifically, you look at uh, forensic anthropology, but outside of the U.S., correct? Uh, yeah, I, I certainly am interested in participating in forensic anthropological work here in the United States, here in Florida. But I have been mostly interested in thinking about how we take what we know about forensic anthropology and using it in parts of the world that have experienced uh, political turmoil. Mm -hmm. Maybe parts of the world where there have, there have been... Uh, instances of war crimes or human rights violations or just long-term periods of political instability mm. that has led to disappearances of folks or, or large numbers of missing people. Um, also, sometimes in mass disasters as well, there, there could be a need for forensic anthropology. So most of my work has been working with colleagues in some of these places around the world where there are a lot of, where there are a lot of folks that need to be identified um, for 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 any number of different reasons, and so I, I, I've done most of my forensic anthro work um, in those contexts to try to get at this sort of broader, big question of mm -hmm. the application of, of forensic anthropology in 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 non-U.S. places. So, do you see any difference um, between doing forensic anthropology work in the U.S. perhaps for? Um, law enforcement or something opposed to maybe doing it outside of the U.S. where there have been, you know, mass casualties, I guess, maybe in a natural disaster or, like you said, in a war zone, perhaps? Uh, yeah. So a lot of times here in the, in the United States, forensic anthropologists will collaborate with their local medical examiner uh, and they will, they will work on a case. They present their findings in a report. They might testify in court. They might not. Uh, but they have very little to do if anything, to do with um, maybe family of a deceased person, mm -hmm. right? We have basically no contact 
with that person at all, unlike what you've maybe seen on TV if you've ever watched a show like CSI or the show Bones. But in the, in the real yeah. world, the friends together in, in the U.S., it's, it's, it's sort of removed from that aspect. Whereas right. in... In some places around the world, a forensic anthropologist might be the person who is collecting information from a family mm. whose loved one is missing. Mm -hmm. A forensic anthropologist might be more involved with with that side of dealing with living relatives, mm -hmm. um, or or that might just be broadly more involved in sort of some of the psychological things that go along with sort of the 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 number of issues that have resulted in people being forensic anthropology cases to start with right why do you why do you think there is a difference there between sort of anthropologists being removed from from some of that process in the U.S. opposed to outside where maybe they're more engaged you with? know I I once heard a, a a person who I admired very greatly the late Dr. Karen Ramey Burns who was a forensic anthropologist that worked in many places around the world she described the United States is having, um, it's a bit of a grim sort of descriptor, but she describes it as the formaldehyde curtain, mm. where like the, the uh, a context that's forensics has a very sort of bounded space where there's like an investigator who's a professional, mm -hmm. that would include a forensic anthropologist, they do their thing, they perform science, they generate a report, and mm -hmm. they're very disconnected, right? Mm. And that's in some ways how forensic scenarios happen here. Whereas in many parts of the world that where folks, for example, have been, wh wh where their loved ones have been disappeared by failed states or various regimes, uh, family members themselves want to participate in an excavation of a grave mm. or mm -hmm. sifting through a screen to find bones or mm -hmm. teeth or helping with that process. So whereas I could never imagine a scenario in the United States where a, a a loved one is brought in and, and is assisting me with an excavation. Yeah. That might be the, how it happens in in somewhere else around the world. Hmm. Uh, so I and I actually think that perspective is really good for U.S. based forensic anthropologists to understand that there's many different ways uh, that our discipline ha happens and the way it functions. Mm -hmm. And and I think if I have one sort of contribution to the field broadly, it's sort of helping make that sort of broader perspective be become more of a mainstay here mm -hmm. hmm. that's that's interesting so how how would you try to broaden that perspective of are you trying to broaden this perspective of engaging like loved ones in these investigations or well, just I, I think there's a lot not not necessarily with loved ones, or just but, the but fact but that sometimes, like yeah right sometimes for example um we have for at USF, my colleague Dr. Erin Kimmerly and her institute, of which I assist with since I've been here, they've done a lot of public outreach events mm -hmm. involving um, cold cases right here right. in the state of Florida, and listening to people that have a missing family member, right. uh, or or being in a way that a missing a family of a missing person could come forward and really hearing what they're saying, right, right. Um, right. And also sort of bringing attention to the fact that there are large categories of people that have maybe over the course of time not had their cases sort of really investigated. And so sort of just bringing sort of a, a, a broad, I mean, the, we talk about 
forensic anthropology as having the word anthropology in the title for a reason. Right. Right. So really trying to bring a broad holistic perspective mm -hmm. um, to the practice of forensic anthropology in the United States is something that those myself and colleagues who work broadly are, are doing by trying to 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 maybe um, to maybe move the needle a little bit for how our discipline mm -hmm. happens. So if I'm understanding this correctly, just simply moving the discipline to where it's not so disconnected in what you said, the you know, behind the formaldehyde curtain, but realizing that in fact, you know, these cold cases or perhaps, you know, newly discovered cases have loved ones and family and friends attached that, you know, obviously have a stake in in these cases and, you know, care about, you know, these things that have happened and, and realizing that there's another side of this besides just generating a report. Yeah, abs absolutely. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think in the days uh, when forensic anthropology started in the United States, the forensic anthropologist just said, bring me the bones, bring me the bones to the lab. Mm -hmm. I'll study the bones and then that's it. And we now know that that's just it, we can do much more. I mean, a good example of this sort of na nationwide discussion is that in the, the primary professional organization, which is called the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, mm -hmm. which has different sections for a long, long time, our section was called physical anthropology, which is sort of the throwback, more antiquated way that we think about biological anthropology. But several years ago, the section decided, actually, let's just call ourselves anthropology. Mm. And so nationally, the whole section changed to reflect this broader perspective. Um, and, and I think that's been a really good thing to, to understand how forensic anthropology can happen mm -hmm. um, and, and the ways in which really forensic anthropologists are very sort of like our other anthropology colleagues doing this broad study of something about, you know, what it means to be a, a, a human. Hmm. So part of part of your work in forensic anthropology has been actually teaching courses uh, for the the International Criminal Investigative Training Assistance Program. It's a mouthful. Yeah, yeah that is a, that is a yeah, mouthful. Big but acronym. the the acronym is uh, ESIP. ESITAP. 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 Yeah, ESITAP. Okay. Can you can you explain um, you know kind of what the the what the program is, what yeah. it does, in in your involvement? So ESITAP is a program that is sponsored by the United States Department of Justice that uh, has allowed forensic scientists, forensic experts in the United States to take that expertise, to take the knowledge that they have and to work with colleagues in other parts of the world that may have a high kind of caseload for some aspect of the forensic sciences and to work with those colleagues to figure out ways that in other parts of the world where maybe don't have the kinds of infrastructure and or resources that um, that forensic laboratories do in the United States or academic kinds of libraries or academic access to, to try to help um, with the, the, the catchphrase of capacity building. And mm -hmm. so my work with ICTAP has been um, in a couple different places in the world, um, a, a lot of experience in the country of Colombia, in South America, and I've also done some work in Algeria and North Africa, working with colleagues on things like um, really understanding the scope of what's possible in forensic right. anthropology, whether right. that's um, doing laboratory-based um, osteology and understanding human skeletal anatomy or doing mm -hmm. field recoveries mm -hmm. or even thinking about research questions or quality assurance. Mm -hmm. So taking sort of some particular aspect of the field uh, and then working with colleagues in a really intense sort of sh 
couple of week training program um, and oftentimes going back over and over and over again to to work with folks who are who are doing this kind of work in other places mm. uh, and so that that's something that I've been involved with on on and off since 2008 um, and has resulted in colleagues presenting at international meetings colleagues getting um, international publications and sort of connecting a community of of anthropologists who are working on the same kinds of questions from around the world um, a really good uh, example, if I've got time, yeah, absolutely. Um, was a was a training that we did in Colombia, um, where we had um, some Algerian anthropologists come as well, mm. and so uh, it was a training class where the same material was being delivered in several languages simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Where myself and another U.S.-based forensic anthropologist were working, I, we must have had twenty-five colleagues there. Um, from these really disparate kinds of places, but who all of us sort of share this sort of uh, uh, interest in our field and our love in this field and understanding the importance of how this field can play out. Mm-hmm. So to see that kind of exchange was quite um, was quite good, though we were having sort of simultaneous, you know, discussions in in Spanish and French and a little bit of Algerian Arabic. So it was mm-hmm. it was a it was a pretty cool experience that that I have been really happy to have been part of so were there several translators yeah. present okay. yeah like yeah. booths in the back headsets okay okay yeah uh, you know lecture materials sure, sure. in multiple languages etc it was, it wow. was kind of cool that sounds that sounds like a really interesting experience yeah. it sounds you know that's a really cool collaborative kind of you know way to um you know reach out to anthropologists outside of the u.s um yeah, for sure. Yeah, that necessarily doesn't happen all the time. You know? No, and yeah. I, I've been I've been very fortunate that that's sort of the way some of my careers enabled me to to work on that re- recognizing that really some of the biggest need for forensic anthropology is not here in the United States, but right. is is elsewhere where there there are there's thousands and thousands of missing people. How did you originally get involved in this program in 2008? Uh, through a colleague. Uh, okay. I mean, when, one of the things that if there's any listeners out there who are graduate students, like, you know, the friends that you make in graduate school are the friends that you're going to be working with forever. Mm. Um, and I had a, a colleague who had just finished up her training at the University of Tennessee and um, got a full-time position with the ICTAP program in Columbia. Oh, and cool. so she moved to Bogota, lived there for five years. And uh, it was her responsibility to help coordinate and plan some of these trainings. Mm. And so... Um, through that connection, um, that that's how that that got started. Huh. Interesting. So, I want to move to you know maybe something that actually that you alluded to earlier. The fact of you know part of being a forensic anthropologist perhaps is having to to testify um, okay. to to law enforcement. Um, so, what you know. Being trained as a forensic anthropology, what kind of preparation do they put you through to be able to to testify, to be able to present your work to uh, non-forensic anthropologists? Um, you know, presenting these cases, writing these reports. What you know, what kind of your training prepares That's you for that? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, and it, I kind of it, it does depend on where you're trained, mm-hmm. and and some places, some places don't have it embedded. Other places do. I can think of at least one program where students take a whole class on expert witness testimony. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. but, but through our field, we do develop fairly close working relationships with detectives, with various sorts of both 
um, you know, attorneys who might be on a, a prosecution side or a defense side. And so you learn with those colleagues who help you understand the if it comes to a testimony, the kinds of questions that you're going to get asked, mm -hmm. the kind of way to explain this highly technical kind of information to right. a jury of 12 people sure. who have maybe never taken biological anthropology classes right. or don't obsess about the skeleton the way that a forensic anthropologist does. Sure. So there's a good bit of sort of of understanding the process that goes into being a witness and whether that's formally through courses mm -hmm. or through just collaboration with people outside of anthropology and various right. forms of the legal system right. is where I think that kind of happens. Or perhaps just getting better at it as you do it more and more yeah. times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. getting better so at experience. it, you know, and also recognizing like you might think I probably naively thought, well, if when you're an expert witness, it's just like the expert witnesses that I've seen on Law and Order. <laughs> um, and and again, you know, just because it's on TV right. doesn't make it true. Mm -hmm. um, and it's always good to remember those shows are fiction. Right. So, yeah. So that that's a, a good reminder for myself. Do you, do you perhaps see that as kind of is is that like a nerve wracking kind of part of your your career and being a forensic anthropologist or is it just kind of you get it, you, you it, get it, used to it? It could come with the territory a little bit. Yeah, I mean, and and you hope to be you know confident or and competent in what you're interpreting. Sure, right. Yeah. So that you can be pretty comfortable right. in what it is that you're trying to say hmm. um, about about a person. And as, I think as long as you are um, quite measured, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and maybe just sort of it, 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 there's a tendency maybe, or an idea that maybe it's really good to interpret or give a really sort of exciting scenario and right. recognizing a lot of times that's not possible and where you're limited in what you can say. I think mm -hmm. that's, that's probably the best realization uh, to have and that if you can remember that it maybe is a little less nerve wracking to just rely on right. relying on what you've observed and then articulating that right so just stick with the facts <laughs> yeah stick with the fact I mean just like any kind of anthropological work right you right. Know, observe what you see and report it right right without mm -hmm. you know the anthropologist you know observes and reports right rather than sort of making you know, assumptions right or, exactly yeah so um, just because I'm not familiar with how this process works, how exactly do you get called in as an expert witness? Is there maybe is there a list because you're a faculty member of f a list of forensic anthropologists that, you know, there prosecutors are, or defense attorneys can pick from? Or? There are some lists. I mean, there is, um, for example, there's a group of anthropologists who are board certified by a group called the American Board of Forensic Anthropology. Uh, and so sometimes those folks might get called but but it also just happens to be the kinds of relationships that forensic anthropologists uh, make in their area so okay. so just your network your, the network that you've had and okay. you know the, it's also important to know that every single case isn't going to go to trial um, mm. a lot of times yeah. even if it's contentious it, it may not be you know for for some reason or another um, you know the, the legal system is fairly fluid mm -hmm. so um, so so I would say the majority of forensic anthropologists have testified a few times, but it's not a, it's not routine. Okay. Um, in the sense that most cases don't end up with the testimony being required. Mm, okay. 
Well, that clears it up because I think when people maybe think when when they think about forensic anthropology, maybe they think it's like a an active part of your no. your daily life or something. So that's good to clear up. We're gonna take another short music break and then we come back and we're gonna wrap up the show for this week and keep talking to Dr. Bethard. Hey Bulls, you're listening to Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and always streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com or the TuneIn app. So we have been talking for the past 45 minutes with Dr. Jonathan Bethard, and we've been talking about bioarchaeology and forensic anthropology and you know bones from a long time ago and perhaps more recent bones, but and all the things that, that go in to those subfields so the last part of the show traditionally we talk about you know how we got into anthropology and and why our anthropological work is useful and so i think we've already alluded to a lot of the things of why this type of work is is useful um sort of making collaborations with anthropologists um you know across across the globe um not just u.s based anthropologists but also you know perhaps from south america north africa and and forming those networks and collaborations which is obviously very important but also in forensic anthropology you know solving cold cases helping law enforcement solve uh, more recent cases but keeping in mind that there's another aspect of this work that um, you know, these cases are not just reports, but they also have friends and family connected, and that this perspective is um, is very important to keep in mind in, in the discipline. So we're going to talk to Dr. Bethard about how he got into uh, anthropology and why he is interested and how he got involved in his bioarchaeological work. Dr. Bethard? Okay, so... Um this is an interesting story, and I, I sometimes tell as a joke that as a high school student, particularly 10th, 11th in grade, 11th and 12th grade, I was a very aggressive high school bassoon player. <laughs> uh, and I basically practiced the bassoon for like three or four hours a day mm. and thought, I'm going to be a bassoonist. And my band director said to me, uh, you should go to the University of Tennessee and study with a bassoon teacher there who went to like the Eastman School of Music and was a really good player. And so I took his advice and I went down there. And before I got to college, he said, you know, they've got this funny facility there and they've got this very well-known forensic anthropology program, FYI. So I, I went to freshman advising first, you know, before school started and I was like, I was a music major. And then I was like, can I take one extra class about anthropology? And they were like, well, okay, here's what it would be. And it was basically the introduction to biological anthropology class and um, I can specifically remember that day during a lecture in my first semester of college when the professor lectured about the skeleton and what you can learn from the skeleton from all these different contexts I just had this moment where I was like that's what I'm gonna do right mm -hmm. um, in, a, in this I, I probably have not had such a profound realization about any other thing mm. um, and I'm not understating that and I just like from that moment, I was like, I'm going to be an anthropologist. I'm mm. going to study this. I'm going to I'm going to, you know, I have to go to graduate school. I have to uh, I just have to do this. And and that was sort of the that was this moment where I, I everything else mm. um, was secondary um, for some strange reasons. And I and I happened to be at a really good university for exactly the kind of thing that I wanted to do and I just right. sort of stayed there 
for all of my academic training hmm. and it, it has paid off so far knock mm -hmm. on wood right um but but it was it was a very easy decision after sort of this fateful informative lecture that i went to um you know in the in my very first semester of college huh all right well that's interesting because you know some some people we've had on the show had a more haphazard entry into, into anthropology which which happens it happened for me and perhaps it happens for others but you know sometimes it just it just clicks you have it, that profound moment and it's just like this is it, what i'm gonna do it clicked and it you know when you call your parents and you're like i'm gonna be an anthropologist and then they're like what's that <laughs> uh or then you like you know back this was back when people were using aim like instant messenger and you were right. like you know at other schools you're like i'm gonna major in anthropology what's that so so i it was something that i was certain about mm. um and i'm still really certain about it um that's good in in a way that I, it's very nice because i i have had no regrets um and i fundamentally think that i really have like the most i'm privileged to think about one of the most interesting subjects that just is possible to think about hmm. so it's kind of cool that that's what i get to do all day and that it's sort of you know a a a, a, a nice thing to just be in the university environment and to get to think about this subject that I, I I have not lost interest in since you know I was in my first year of college. Hmm. That's fantastic. So we have about a minute to wrap up the show. Any uh, briefly, any final thoughts or uh, any yeah, takeaways? Sure. I mean, I I if, if I've got a captive audience on the radio and uh, particularly USF students, I'm going to encourage anybody that wants to check out taking an anthropology class. There's lots of different really great um, introductory and upper level anthropology classes that could complement your fields of study um, and that you, you might really enjoy taking one of our classes. So get on the OASIS system and look at those available uh, courses and maybe myself or my colleagues will see you in our classes, you know, in spring of 2018 or sometime um, in the future. Well, I think that's a good way to wrap up the show this week. Um, if you would like to contact Dr. Bethard, um, his information is on anthroalert.com, along with a uh, brief description of his research and what we've been talking about today. So perhaps um, if you're interested in anthropology, you can obviously go on USF Anthropology page. Um, you could contact Dr. Bethard. If you have more questions, you could contact... Um, AnthroAlert, if you have some questions, and we can either answer those or steer you to someone who can answer those questions. So if you'd like to learn more, we're, we're on YouTube now. We're on AnthroAlert.com, and we thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.